Hello, welcome to the Beef Cattle Health and Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. John Campbell. This week, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Zach Johnson to the podcast. Dr. Johnson's a veterinarian who owns and practices a mixed animal practice in Melville, Saskatchewan. And this week, Zach's going to join me to discuss an interesting infertility case that he dealt with in one of the herds in his practice. Before we start, though, I need to prepare you for the melatones you're going to be hearing this week. Zach has a perfect voice for podcasting or radio. I think if he hadn't decided to become a veterinarian, he could have had a career in broadcasting. With that, let's get started. Hi, Zach. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. But before we get started on our discussion for today, maybe I'll get you to tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Perfect. Thanks, John, for having me. Uh, it's uh, We have a mixed practice in Melville, Saskatchewan. Um, we're about 65-70% small animal, but the remainder is cow-calf, and we do quite a lot. There's uh, five veterinarians that work out of our office, and it has steadily grown since we took over the business in 2016. So it's been very busy, very humbling um, experience, but also getting to learn a lot and work with some really awesome producers and clients has been a really great experience so far. That's great. And when you graduated, you were not necessarily thinking about being in a rural practice, right? No, it wasn't on my radar at all. To be honest, when I was going into vet school, I thought I was going to graduate and open a specialty canine practice. Now here we are owning a mixed rural practice in Melville, Saskatchewan of all places. And it's been a great experience and I wouldn't change anything about it. So it was maybe happened a little bit faster for practice ownership because I graduated and then bought a clinic a month later. So I'm one of the weird and odd ones out there, but it's been a very good experience. Well, that's great. And and we've worked with you on a few different outbreak investigations over the years. And we want to talk about one of those today that we did a few years ago. Actually, I said we, but you did all the work. Uh, we helped out with some of the diagnostic testing. Let's start by just sort of describing in general, we don't want to give away the identity of the herd, but describing in general the herd that this problem occurred in. Yeah, for sure. So it's a 350 head commercial herd that uh, we'd been working with for a little while and <clears throat> had never had any major issues or, or anything like that moving forward or in the past. And then we were out there um, doing some preg checks and ran into a little bit of a problem. So background is that they're usually vaccinated and up to date. They were using a killed vaccine and the calves were properly vaccinated with a modified live version. And up to date, everything was going well there. Cattle were not bad in terms of shape. Some were a little bit on the thinner side. Some were a little bit on the heavier side, but that is typical in most herds. And um, there wasn't much there on the outside that you could see, but we started to notice some things. The more we looked and did some diagnostics and uh, checked a couple a little bit closer, we started to find some abnormalities there. So what were the pregnancy rates that year when you preg checked the herd? Tell us what happened. So out of about 347 head, we had 103 open, which is a huge, huge rate. For those listening, you you know, you guys probably know already, but the average rate for an adult cow is going to be that 5% to 10% in there. And we obviously want it as low as possible. And for heifers, we want it around the 10% or under for conception rates. And we were at 30%, so extremely high and troublesome, especially when you're looking at 103 animals that were supposed to be pregnant and obviously aren't, that has large economic implications for 
these folks as well. And so it's not just a matter of, oh, they're bred or they're not. It's now you're trying to manage that and the costs associated with, with the open cows as well. Right. And infertility, as you say, is a major financial hit and obviously a, a big problem. But these cases are kind of tough to investigate. Why is that? You're getting it a little bit after the fact, right? You think about when they're out and they're being bred and conceiving these calves, it's in the summertime often, and you're not doing the diagnostics at that time either. They're also not being monitored as closely because they're out on pasture and you're checking them and making sure they've got feed and water, but you're not out there every day, a lot of them anyway, checking them as, as closely as you may want to when you're trying to work up these problems. So you're, you're trying to go back in time and figure out, okay, what was the issue that caused these open rates? And there's a myriad of things that can do that. And it's a little bit of a, a definitely a financial aspect to working it up. But you also have to think about a, a lot of different things that may not be evident right away at the time that you're working up. And like I said, going back in time is something that you have to try and think about when you're working these things up. Right. And often we're working it up to try to prevent it from happening again in the future. There's really not much we can do about this last breeding season. Uh, we're trying to sort out what the reason was in case we need to change something about the nutrition or the vaccination program or, or whatever that may be. And we have so many causes of infertility, as you said, we could have body condition issues. We could have other nutritional deficiencies. We could have all these infectious kinds. It may have been abortion. We don't always, as you say, we're not watching them all the time. So uh, there's lots of different things and, and they are challenging because we're looking at something that maybe happened four or five months ago. So what did you do to investigate the outbreak? Well, we, uh, we started talking about what kind of samples we want to pull and what we want to look for. And like you said, there's a number of different things that can be investigated to find out why they're open such things as nutritional reasons body condition and infectious and those kind of span a few different categories so when we looked at that we said okay what kind of samples do we need and what things should we look at so the ones that we did in this case was we pulled a, a couple vials of blood on each cow and i shouldn't say each cow we didn't test all 103 because that's an insanely large amount to do uh, but we picked a representative sample and of the group at about 10 to 15 animals. And we pulled blood samples for infectious causes as well as tighter causes. So what we're vaccinating for and pre-breeding ideally or at preg check time, what the uh, those viral and bacterial components that are in our vaccines, we're checking for tighter levels on those to see where our antibody levels are at. We're also looking for things like mineral uh, levels within the blood and vitamin levels within the blood as those can play a large role in conception as well. And then like we talked about some of those infectious ones. So things like neospora or leptospirosis, urea plasma is one that's there as well. And we've seen before in, in another herd that we, you and I worked up actually, and uh, is there. And, and a lot of people don't know it's commonly in herds, but it's not one that usually causes a major problem. Um, but sometimes definitely can be a player. And then other things like Trick and Vibrio that we would look for in a lot of those community pasture settings. But in this case, with a large open rate, needs to be considered as well. Well, let's just talk about some of those briefly. We went through a big, long list. We maybe won't get through them all, but let's talk about Neospora or Neospora caninum. Uh, it's a parasitic cause of infectious abortion. So how is that spread and how do we diagnose it? So that one is a tough one so cattle are considered intermediate hosts so that means that they're kind of the middleman in the whole infectious cycle and 
dogs or canines usually are the beginning cycle or the direct host or definitive host for that. So it's getting ingested through fecal contamination of feed and water uh, or ground where they're grazing. Um, and they ingest these infective portions of the uh, parasite and it starts to wreak havoc and can lead to anything from early abortion where you're necessarily not seeing the abortion itself to infected calves that are either clinically abnormal, meaning they're coming out and they're ill or there's something there, or they can be what we call congenitally infected and normal, meaning that they're infected in utero and they don't necessarily show clinical signs either. But a lot of the ones that we're seeing, like you're talking about, are abortion related and depending on the time of gestation or pregnancy that they're getting infected. In terms of how we diagnose it, we've been pulling blood samples and running the serum tests to see if they have a, a high percentage or level within the bloodstream that would be present and indicate that there may be a problem related to neosterocaninum. So we look for antibodies and we should maybe mention that there's probably always some animals that have been exposed to it in the past. And we see some background levels in most herds. So we're probably looking for a high rate of infection as a way of trying to diagnose it, or we might find it at postmortem in some aborted fetuses. That's probably the more definitive way of diagnosing it. You mentioned IBR and BVD. Those are two things we usually vaccinate for. And this herd, as you said, was fairly well vaccinated. So what do we measure there when we're maybe thinking about that? We're probably going to think about that more in an unvaccinated herd than a vaccinated herd. For sure. But we're also looking for tighter levels in there as well. And so, you know, we have these herds vaccinated. So you're going to say, okay, well, they're going to have an antibody level. That's what we want. Why are, why are we testing for that? And you're not wrong. You're going to see those levels there, but in active infections or the ones that were potentially infected in the cause of abortion, those levels will be a lot higher or we'll run what we call serologic testing where we're going to run them again, you know, at a certain time frame out and we'll test them again and see if those points go up, down or stay the same because that will tell us a lot too if they've had an active infection or something else going on unrelated to the vaccine amounts. Same with leptospirosis. In particular, this case did have some positives for neospora as well as for lepto, um, but it wasn't the main cause of the issue in this one. But again, you're looking for those titers and changes between the two values to make sure that there's not an active infection going on and maybe the value you're getting is just related to vaccination. You mentioned uh, testing the bulls for trick and campylobacter. Trichomonas fetus, it's a single-celled parasite and Campylobacter is a bacterial infection, or sometimes called Vibrio. And they're both spread in a similar ma manner by mating from bulls to cows or from cows to bulls. But we focus on testing the bulls there. Why do we do that, not the cows? The cows are just very hard to test, and there's not great accuracy in getting those. Um, so we, we commonly do these perpetual scrapings where we have that long... Um, rod that is attached to a syringe and we'll use that to get a sample from the refuse and sheath to do a scraping and send it away in a medium that allows us to get a diagnosis on whether those animals are positive or negative. They're also going to be the bigger carriers and be um, the ones that will have it. And so you're going to get a much better chance of getting a positive result on those than you will out of testing the cows. So after all this diagnostic work, what did you find that was clinically significant in this herd? In this herd, ended up being a mineral problem. They had had mineral out for uh, a portion of the time, but it stopped over the course of the summer. 
And what we had found when we pulled the mineral samples was that copper was the biggest problem and that we were actually quite low across the board on every animal that we tested. And you have to keep in mind that when we did this, we also tried to test pregnant ones as well as open ones because we wanted to see if there was a statistical difference or if there was going to be a difference across them when we got our results back and all of them were deficient. So it makes you think, okay, why, why did they conceive a calf or why did they stay pregnant if their copper is still low? And some animals will function at different levels, but the only, the other problem is, is that when you're testing them at preg check time, you're now two, three, four months sometimes after the fact, and those levels are a snapshot in time. And so where you're getting them tested now may not have been where they were when they were getting bred. So they may have been at a higher level out on pasture when they were conceiving that calf and now they were truly deficient. So it's something you need to keep in mind is that's where we're talking about this back in time window and you're trying to do the best work if you can. But um, some of these levels may have been different back then and may have been normal and they have been cycling and bred, obviously, whereas now they're deficient. And usually the ones that are deficient were deficient again back then, but it's hard to say for sure. And I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I, I do remember this case that they were really deficient. I think marginal is in our lab is 0.5 to 0.6 parts per million and below 0.5 is classified as deficient. And a lot of these were in the 0.2 and 0.3 parts per million. We were doing blood testing, uh, not liver testing. And, and we know that the blood lags behind the liver. The liver's the storage organ for the copper. And once they get deficient in the liver, then the blood copper starts to go down. And these were really low in blood copper. So they were really deficient uh, from my recollection. Yeah, you're correct. They were they were anywhere from kind of the 0.18 all the way out to 0.3, but they were quite deficient across the board. Yeah, yeah so some of the lowest levels I'd seen and heard in a while. You didn't see anything abnormal in those cows other than there was some poor body condition cows which might go along with copper but we didn't see hair color changes or notice anything like that I don't remember that anyway no there wasn't any hair color changes but what I did notice when I was palpating a lot of these is that the ovaries were quite small and the uterus just lacked a lot of tone and so to me that makes me think okay are we really cycling all that much and one of the big things with copper is that it really affects the estrous cycle in these animals. And so if that is low and they're not able to cycle and go through those normal processes, they're obviously not going to get bred. And a lot of these animals, you'll feel that too on, on rectal examination if you're able to palpate these ovaries because it's, it's quite substantial. And most of these open cows, I've done enough now that you can see the open uterus on the ultrasound machine and trace through everything and see the ovaries. But a lot of these, I was having trouble visualizing anything to the point where I had to go and palpate them afterwards to make sure that they were really open. And uh, a lot of those ones just had really small uteruses that were inactive and not really cycling. That's interesting. And this is on into the fall. So they've had a long time to uh, start cycling and they're still not doing it because of that low copper. So what could have caused the deficiencies in this herd, Zach? Did we come up with a reason for why they're deficient? Was it just not feeding enough copper or was there something else going on? I think it was mainly feed related in this case that they're, the mineral supplement, whether it just be an organic mineral that wasn't chelated or wasn't provided for long enough terms, um, wasn't there. I don't believe we did get water tests on these because sulfates in the water can play with this as well and make it harder for that copper to be absorbed. And then we have deficiencies that way too. 
molybdenum, really fun one to say, is also something that can cause the deficiencies as it ties up the copper. And so that's usually in the ground or the feed that the cattle are ingesting and is a tough one to mitigate. And you have to try and overcome that with excess copper almost or, or boosting the mineral. And John, maybe you can you can speak more to this, but wasn't there, I think there was a study based on what types of mineral were better absorbed and over a shortened a certain time frame. Do you remember that? Yeah, there was a study where they depleted copper in cattle and then tried to put their copper levels back to normal. And they used three strategies, I think organic, chelated, and injectable. And the injectable was fastest, uh, still took a month, I think, after the injectable before they were back to normal. Chelated was maybe slightly faster. Can't remember the exact numbers of that study, but but it was interesting. We've done some work here and didn't find big differences between organic and chelated copper. So it it is a little bit variable and probably depends a little bit on the situation. I think one of the big issues that we're seeing nowadays in herds is we have so many herds that do extended grazing or a much longer time where they're on pasture in various ways. They're swath grazing, they're on corn, they're on different things like that. So they're relying on free choice mineral intake in many cases for a much longer proportion of the year. And that might be one of the reasons. We know that not all cows consume free choice mineral unless you can drive that mineral consumption somehow. Uh, And that might be one of the issues. And it may also just be the issue that the mineral, they weren't feeding enough or weren't driving it enough throughout the year in other ways too. So it's a good thing to work with your veterinarian or your nutritionist to make sure your mineral levels are good. And you can do that by doing some blood testing or testing some liver samples, either through biopsies or maybe in a calf or a cow that dies, you could check the liver and send it off and get some trace mineral levels done to see where see where you're at. I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that when they're out on pasture, like you said, it's hard to get them to take that mineral, right? Unless you're feeding it in a mixed ration where they're in bunks and they're getting force fed that loose mineral. It's really, it's unpredictable to see, you know, who's going to intake what and that really has an effect on it too, I think. What did you do in this case uh, with the producer to make sure this didn't happen again? What was What were the next steps? In this case, we put them in touch with a nutritionist to try and work with the feed and get feed sampled, but also get a more consistent mineral delivery program. Like you said, when they're out on pasture and they've got that free choice mineral, it's hard to make sure that everybody's getting appropriate levels, but offering it all year round because previously we weren't. And so that's something that we definitely discussed. We also discussed doing mineral injections, which is like what you're talking about, where you're trying to boost those and get those levels up and talked about doing it prior to turnout so that they kind of have those highest levels that month before and get that level up so that conception rate ideally is highest beginning of the breeding season. Yeah, we should also mention that you can overdo copper. We have seen copper toxicity cases uh, from time to time. So you should do some feed testing or some blood testing or liver testing to make sure where you are before you start overdoing copper in some fashion. You can get copper toxicity. And I like to do that, especially before we would take on injectable trace mineral product. We started off this case at preg checking time and you're in the midst of that right now, Zach. You're super busy, I know. I think it's maybe a good time to talk about the value of pregnancy checking. What is the argument for getting your cows preg tested? 
Well, I think when you're looking at just even from a feed perspective, and this game is all about economics, every producer knows that. And at the end of the day, you still have to be able to make money. A lot of people love doing this, but you also have to put food on the table. And so when you're preg checking these animals, you're also not putting feed towards the open ones if they truly are open. And so you're able to get rid of those and concentrate your feed supply on the ones that are going to give you a calf come calving time. And right now, as everybody knows, the cow prices are quite good. And so it's, you know, if they're open and they're in good shape, it's a good thing to move and help the economic side of it. And just make sure that you're, you're keeping your herd as fertile as possible. It's not any benefit to you to keep the ones that are open and try and give them another chance necessarily, as it plays into the whole genetic side of things and what your pregnancy rates are going to be like in future years. So to me, there's lots of value in it and making sure that you're not keeping those ones around that are going to be detrimental to you economically and and long-term. Yes, I think that's uh, very good advice. And the other aspect of it is if you do have a problem, we find out about it a little bit sooner and can maybe figure it out. If you wait till calving season and find out, oh, I got all these open cows. Now, all of a sudden you're trying to get into the next breeding season. We don't have much time to correct an issue like copper if we find out that's the issue. So I guess that's the other side value is identifying those problems a little bit earlier by doing pregnancy checking rather than waiting till calving season. For sure. That totally makes sense. Well, Zach, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. I know you're busy at the clinic these days, and uh, you're also our president of the Saskatchewan Veterinary Medical Association and uh, busy with those responsibilities. So thanks for all you do, and thanks for taking part in this with me today. You bet. I appreciate you having me on. It's been a pleasure. I enjoy the podcast, and uh, really glad that you uh, reached out and we were able to do this today. So thank you very much. That's the show for this week. Thanks to all of you for listening to the podcast, and thanks again to my guest, Dr. Zach Johnson. Thank you as well to our sponsors, the Alberta Beef Producers and the Beef Cattle Research Council. If you have a question or comment or would like to suggest topics that you'd like to see covered in future episodes, please email me at bchnpodcast at gmail.com. Take care till next time.